Well, I don't know if you realize it, but Christmas is over. Right? Christmas is over. Now, the question is, what next? What happens? Did the Bible give us any directions for what we should do after Christmas? Not implying now that the Bible tells us that we should observe Christmas. I don't mean to imply that at all. But does the Bible give us any direction as to how we should live our lives after focusing on the greatest event probably ever to happen on the face of the earth, even when we look at the resurrection? And that is, of course, the incarnation of the Son of God. When God became Emmanuel, God with us, he enfleshed himself. He tabernacled among us as a human being. Now, one of the most interesting courses I took in seminary was a course entitled Ancient Civilizations. The course was intended to give the background, the origins, and development of the peoples of the world prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, B.C., before Christ came. Now, a major focus upon, in the course for our study was upon a small area of land called the Mesopotamian Valley or the Fertile Crescent. Now, of course, we quickly learned that the term Mesopotamian that was normally used for the entire Fertile Crescent was the narrow because really Mesopotamia was a part of the Fertile Crescent itself. Now, this area included, if we look at it today, from today's perspective and the lands that we have today, it included, in addition to Mesopotamia, land in around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Uh, it included the area of Iran, which was formerly Mesopotamia, by the way, uh, some parts of the Persian Gulf, Kuwait to the south, and Turkey in the north. But more typically, the Fertile Crescent includes also the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, with Syria, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, and the West Bank. Uh, so it's a big area, but it's an area that focused on those particular sites or areas. Now, in an extended form, the Fertile Crescent also included Egypt, the Nile Valley, and the delta within and around it. Now, my point for mentioning this this morning is that many anthropologists and historians believe that it was in this area that the root of civilization started or took place. They believe this, they say, because everything that is supposed to characterize a civilization was found in the area at that early stage. Things such as means of communication. This is where they found hieroglyphics and cuneiform, a form of earliest writing. They found an established legal system. They found all kinds of documents on trade, religion, marriage, eating utensils, farming tools, irrigation system, and of course, weapons of war. Because you know, you cannot have a civilization without weapons of war. And so they said, because these items were found in this area, it is seen as the birthplace of civilization, the Fertile Crescent. Uh, the Fertile Crescent. So it's considered to be the cradle of civilization. And that's the term that I was reminded of as I was thinking about the message today. The cradle of, fertile, of civilization. 
and they called it that, the cradle of civilization, because specific items that are deemed to be necessary to constitute a civilization were found in that area. I was a little amused when some of my studies, they said that uh, the teacher in, an, in a grade school asked the children this question. What do you think is necessary to be present in a civilized nation? They were supposed to give three things only, given in priority, number one, number two, and number three. You know what number one was? TV. You know what number two was? Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know what number three was? McDonald's. That's from kids today. Now, of course, none of those things were present or even thought about in those days of the Fertile Crescent. But that's how Americans and Bahamians think of what makes up civilization. TV, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I wouldn't say McDonald's. I would say Wendy's. But anyway, those things, all right? Now, these things, this emphasis has an important point to make in the message that I want to give. I want to demonstrate from Scripture that even as the fertile crescent was seen as the cradle of civilization, the Christmas story should be seen as the cradle of evangelization, the cradle of evangelism. And I'm saying that because all of the elements that constitute biblical evangelism is included in the Christmas story. That's what we'll be looking at today. But before we do that, we're going to have Anton come to lead us in another song. You can turn your Christmas psalm book to number 33, or the words would be projected as well, whatever one you prefer. As we sing together, who is he in yonder stall? Let's stand together as we honor the one who was born in the cradle but who is Lord of all? Jesus. Who is he? Who is he in yonder stall? At whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he in deep distress? Fasting in the wilderness. Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At His feet we humbly fall. Crown Him, crown Him, Lord of all. Who is He, the peace? 
gathering throng, greet with loud triumphant song. Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At His feet we humbly fall. Crown Him, crown Him, Lord of all. We're going to sing verses 4 and 5 back to back. Verse 4 now. Low at midnight to his Praise him, dark Who is he on yonder tree? Dies in grief and agony. Verse 5. Who is he that from the grave comes to hail and help and sing. Who is he that from his throne rules through all the world alone? Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Round and round him, Lord, at his feet. As I was saying, the Fertile Crescent is considered to be the cradle of civilization because certain specific items that are deemed necessary or basic to constitute a civilization were found in that area. Now, if we apply the same principle to the Christmas story, I believe that we will see that we have what I call the cradle of evangelism embedded in that story as well. And I say that because all of the basic, necessary elements for evangelism are to be found in this magnificent story, the Christmas story that we look at every year. And so I'm going to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Now, we are going to have it on the screen as well, but I want you to look at, want to look at it very carefully in the scriptures that you have in your hands as well. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. Now in the very opening sentence of this passage, I believe we have the basic qualification for evangelism. Notice what it says. When they had seen him. Now the King James Version says, when they had seen this. The question is, seen what or whom? Verse 16 gives us the answer. The baby who was lying in a manger. That was what the shepherd saw. That is who the shepherd saw. The baby who was lying in a manger. This is the experience that they had. They saw a baby lying in a manger. But now you may ask, what is so unique about this. 
what is so significant about this baby lying in a manger? Well, look at verse 12. This will be a sign to you. This is uh, the angel speaking here. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger was a sign. It was, in fact, a divine sign. A sign is never given without purpose by God. A sign always has a definite purpose behind it. God does not waste his signs. Now, if you want to prove this, read the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is written around seven signs. Seven signs. And John says that they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So those signs in the book of John were written specifically for the purpose of leading people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. A sign is not wasted by God. Wherever signs are given, they have a divine purpose for it. And we have to see that there's a divine purpose for this sign of a baby lying in a manger, wrapped in cloths. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you'll also see the same emphasis upon signs. The entire book of Acts is a record of the signs and wonders that God performed through his people, and specifically his apostles, to establish the church in the world. God used specific signs given through the instrumentality of apostles in order to establish the church. In fact, one of the most controversial passages that we have in Scripture has to do with tongues. And even this, the Bible says that tongues were for a sign, a sign to the unbeliever. It was a sign for the unbeliever. Divine signs has, have a specific purpose behind them. And so in order for us to understand the Christmas story, we must ask and answer the question biblically, what was the sign in the baby being wrapped in cloth lying in the manger? Why was this a sign? What did the sign signify? Some say it signified poverty. It showed that Mary and Joseph were poor. But now, I don't know if that would be a sign because it is well known that Mary and Joseph were poor. In fact, if you read the gospel story, when they presented Jesus in the temple, uh, according to the law, they had to use turtle doves as a sacrifice. Turtle doves were always indications of people who couldn't afford a lamb. It was the poor people who offered the turtle doves, and that's what Mary and Joseph did. So it really doesn't fit the idea of what a sign is, the importance of a sign to say that it simply signified their poverty. Now, I believe that the sign goes much deeper than this and refers to something much more significant. I believe that the sign was the manner in which the baby was wrapped in strips of cloth. It was interesting that if you study this in the original, you'll find that this is the only place in the Bible where this word for cloth is used, nowhere else. So this was a specific type of cloth or the way in which it was used that is being referred to here. And so I believe that it represented the fact 
that this baby was born to die. It was the prophecy of the death of this little baby because that's the way that they wrapped dead bodies in strips of cloth. He was the baby Jesus, to be sure. But what was his given name? To be called Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from the sins. And the sign, the way that Jesus was wrapped in this strips of cloth was an indication of the fact of how he would be the savior of the world. That's the sign. That's the significance of a baby being wrapped in strips of cloth. The shepherds then had a personal experience or encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. They had a personal experience or a personal encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And that's an essential part of evangelism. No one can tell the Christmas story with power unless you have experienced the Christ that you are proclaiming. So one of the essential ingredients for biblical evangelism is that you must have had an encounter, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ as your Savior. There must have been a point in your life when you recognize that Jesus Christ came to save you, and as a result of that, you place your faith in him and him alone as the basis for your salvation. John, for instance, in 1 John 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim the word of life. John was talking about an impersonal encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where our salvation begins. That's where our evangelistic zeal begins, with a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. So I wonder how many of you here today have had that personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Not just hearing about him, not just even reading about him, but having a personal encounter with him as your Savior. There was a point in your life and you realized that you were a sinner, that you were separated from God. You could do nothing to bring yourself into fellowship with God. You can do nothing. And then you heard about this Savior, Jesus Christ. You heard about this one who was Emmanuel, God with us. And you learned about his sinlessness. And you learned upon the fact that he who knew no sin was made a sin-atoning sacrifice for you and for me. And as a result, you place your faith in him. A personal encounter with Jesus Christ is an essential ingredient for evangelism. It's no use for an unsaved person to try to evangelize. No matter how many times you say you are a Christian, no matter how many years you've been a member of a church, no matter how much you give, no matter how many doors you knock, no matter how many tracts you give out, if you have never personally encountered Jesus Christ, you are not a qualified evangelist. You must have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. That's what that tells us there. So it was a personal encounter with the person of Christ that qualified the apostles to tell others about Jesus Christ. The same principle applies for us today. Believers in Christ are the only ones qualified to tell others about Jesus Christ. In fact, as we'll see as we go to this passage, we are, we are actually obligated to do so, to tell others about Jesus Christ, if we have had that personal encounter with him. But not only does the Christmas story tell us 
that a personal encounter with Christ is necessary for genuine, effective evangelism, but it also describes for us the basic response that is essential in evangelism. Look at the second phase, uh, phrase in that verse, verse 17. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. When they had seen him, that's the personal encounter, they spread the word, this is the result now, concerning what had been told them about this child. Look at the phrase, they spread the word. Literally in the original text, it could be translated, they published abroad, or you can say they publicized, or they spoke publicly about this child, about this person. This should be the natural, automatic response to those who have had a personal response with Jesus Christ. We should publicly tell others about the one whom we have personally encountered. That should be a natural outcome result of our encountering Jesus Christ ourselves. The implication here then is a strong one, and it is this. One cannot truly have a genuine personal encounter with Jesus Christ and not make him known to others. That's the strong implication here. You cannot have a genuine personal encounter with the person of Jesus Christ and not make him known to others. That comes with a package. That's a part of the salvation package, telling others about the one who saved you. I believe that this, gives, this, is, uh, this is substantiated in the verse that we all know in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses. Notice, my witnesses. Now, it's not merely witnesses of something, although that's included, but really it's witnesses who belong to Jesus Christ. That's the idea. My witnesses, witnesses who belong to me. Witnesses who belong to me, and as a result of that relationship, there's a spreading abroad of that relationship. It's not just spreading abroad facts. Facts do not save. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that saves. This is what is essential to genuine evangelism. Christians are not simply to tell about their experiences. Now, we need to, but we are to tell of the person whom we have experienced or accounted in Jesus Christ. That's why when I ask people to give testimonies, you know, we like to tell about all of the bad things that we did and all of those things, and now I don't do it anymore. But sometimes we forget to, to include why we are not doing those things anymore. And so I like to say, tell them what you were, tell them what you are, and tell them how you got that way. That's a testimony, and it always focuses upon Jesus Christ. Not my turning over a new life, not that I had so much courage, I stopped doing this, I stopped doing that, but Jesus Christ, my personal relationship with him, he has changed my life. Facts didn't change my life. A person changed my life. A relationship changed my life, and that was Jesus Christ. And so I say again, the natural response of encountering Christ is to tell others about him. That's the basic effective, that's the basic thing for effective evangelism. And that's what we are responsible to do after Christmas. Do you want to know what to do after Christmas? Tell others about the Christ of Christmas. That's what we are obligated to do. We are to be sure that the gift continues 
to go on by making him known to others. The gift must go on. The gift must go on. There's a song about that, isn't that? You want to sing it? No, you don't want to sing it. All right. The gift must go on. And that's the idea. It isn't just that we have the gift, we keep it to ourselves. We must give that gift to others as well. Amen? But now, something else is in this text, in verse 17. And it gives us the specific message of evangelism. The specific message of evangelism. Notice the text again. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. Concerning what had been told them about this child. Notice, they did not publicize their experiences. There's a lot of emphasis upon experience today. In fact, some people are putting their experience above the word of God. They say, I don't mind what the word says. It happened to me. I experienced it, so it must be true. No, the Bible doesn't teach us that. They did not publicize their experiences. They did not even publicize seeing the angels, not to everyone. They didn't even publicize the glory that they experienced. They publicized the word concerning what had been told them about this child. The word concerning what had been told them about this child. So the basic essential message of evangelism is stated right here. They publicized the word concerning the child wrapped in pieces of cloth. Now, here's where we come to another little Greek lesson, and I'm not using the Greek to show you how much I know, because you could find this anywhere. Any dictionary, any concordance, any insight, you could find this anywhere. But the word for word here is the Greek word rima. It means a particular statement or a word or expression, even a quotation. There's another word for word in the Greek, and it's the word logos. Logos is not used here. You see, logos refers to the entire concept or thought. It's the entire book, not just a chapter or a quotation from the book. It's the whole box of wax, if you want. Jesus is the logos of God. He is the complete revelation of God. He is the alpha and omega, the whole alphabet, A through Z and everything in between. He is the complete mind of God. That's why when we talk about scriptures, we say that scripture is inspired of God. It is the breathing out of the thought of God. All of God's thoughts have been breathed out into the word of God. That's what we have in our hands. He conveys, Jesus though, conveys all of God's thoughts to man himself personally. He was God with us. He was Emmanuel. Jesus is the whole counsel of God. He is the Logos of God. That's not the word that is used here in this text. The word here is Rima. This refers to a specific statement, a specific statement about this child, which is the essential message of evangelism. Now, several important things are said about this message, and we're going to look at them in detail. Now, as I mentioned, the word in our text for word is the Greek word rima. This refers to a specific statement, a specific word concerning the child. Now, several important things are said about this statement. First, 
it has a divine origin. Look at verse 9. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. The messenger was an angel of the Lord. In other words, the source of this message was the Lord. That preposition of the Lord speaks of origin or source. The message then was of divine origin. It came from God himself. Or a better translation is the God of glory. The God of glory. In other words, this divine message was given in the context of the first appearance of the Shekinah glory of God since it left the temple in the Old Testament because of Israel's continued disobedience. Now remember in the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people. He tabernacled among his people uh, in a a tabernacle. It was made especially for him, and all of the tribes were encamped around him. He was in the midst of his people. Now, his glory was represented there in the midst of his people. By night, it would be cloud fire. In the day, it would be, be a cloud. When Israel disobeyed or refused to obey God and abandoned God's word, he left. The Shekinah glory left. And read the story in the Old Testament. It's a very telling one. It's almost like the glory left reluctantly. It went stage by stage rather than just going all of a sudden. But it did move away. And there was nothing told of the Shekinah glory in the Bible until the angels mentioned it here or referred to it here in the birth of Christ. The Shekinah glory. And in the midst of that experience, this word about the Savior was given. And that's why we like to say it was of divine, it was of a divine origin. The message of the gospel comes from God. It is not the word of man, it is the word of God. That's why we have to be careful how we preach the gospel. Because many times, unfortunately, I hear the gospel preached and an invitation is given, but really People respond not to the gospel of God, but to the gospel of man. Are you having a tough time in your life? Come to Jesus Christ. Your wife left you. Your husband left you. You don't have any money? Come to Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you're a sinner. You're convinced of it. You know you're going to be separated from God eternally. You know you can do nothing to help yourself. You need to cry out to Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can save you. That's the message of the gospel. If you respond to the invitation for any other reason, you're not being saved from your sins. You might be trying to be saved from some of your problems, but not from your sins. The gospel has a specific message, and it's about the death of Jesus Christ given on Calvary's cross, his life given on Calvary's cross, so that you could have eternal life. Not so that you could have a good marriage, although, of course, that could come. That's a part of it. That's part of living and being a Christian. The major thing, the major thing is the fact that Jesus Christ came to be the Savior of the world. Now, what does it say about this one? Well, notice the text again. He is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's not only a Savior. He doesn't only come to save us from our sins. But notice, he is Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ means Messiah or the anointed one. 
the one who is specially chosen by God. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three offices to which a person was anointed. Three. First, there's the, prophet, there's the office of a prophet. A prophet was one who spoke forth the revealed will of God. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that God spoke in time past through various prophets and various means and methods. But in these latter days, he said, in these last days, he spoke to us through his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God's final word to man was his son, Jesus Christ, God with us. The son born in Bethlehem's barn on that first Christmas was God's final word to us. He has nothing else to say other than what he has said in Jesus Christ. And so then as a prophet, Jesus reveals the Father to us through his word and his person. In fact, the Apostle John specifically says in 1 John 1 that Jesus came to exegete the Father, came to make him known. The Greek word is to exegete. Jesus was an exegeter of God. Well, that's not a good word. He's an expositor of God. Jesus was the expositor of God. He came to make God clearly known. He came to reveal God for who he was, not adding anything to it, not taking anything away from it. He came to expose God. He came to reveal God. He came to explain God. He came to exegete the Father. That's Jesus Christ as the prophet. He is the prophet. He was the anointed one. Now, as a result of this, Jesus Christ tells us that if we want to see the Father, we must take a close look at Jesus Christ. And they, the way we come into a closer relationship with God the Father is by coming into a closer relationship with God the Son. One of our problems is that we think that become a better Christian, we have to learn a lot of things. Now, that's helpful, of course. But if you leave out the personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not going to come to a fuller knowledge of God the Father because it's our knowledge of him that it encourages us to live a godly life. Living a godly life causes us to study the word. Studying the word causes us to come into a closer relationship with God, and that close relationship continues that cycle where we continue to become more Christ-like. So Jesus Christ then was the expositor of God as the prophet. He was the anointed one. But, he was all, but a priest was also anointed in the Old Testament. And so Jesus was also a priest. A priest, of course, is someone who stands between God and man. He serves, in other words, as a bridge builder between the sinner and a holy God. That's a mediator. That's what Jesus Christ is, a mediator. That's what he was even, in that little, even as a little baby. He was the mediator between God and man. He is the perfect man. He is able, therefore, to take hold of Man, as well as take hold of God. That's why he could be the perfect mediator or bridge builder. He's able to take hold of the Father and bring us together as they take hold of us as well. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us that Jesus did not take a hold of the nature of angels, but he took a hold of the nature of human beings. That word, take a hold, is the beautiful words. It's a strong word. It's only used one other place in the New Testament. It's in the gospel 
when Jesus was walking on the water, you remember? Peter saw him and he asked him to come towards him. Jesus said, come. Peter starts towards him. And as you know, Peter starts to sink. The Bible says Jesus stretched forth his hand and saved him or pulled him up. That's the same word used. Jesus stretched out his hand and pulled him up and saved him. That's exactly what Jesus did when, when he was born as a babe in Bethlehem, as Emmanuel, God with us. He stretched forth his hand and he took a hold of us as sinners in order to bring us into relationship with God. He's our only mediator. There's no one else who can save us. No one else. No one else. No one else. There's no other philosopher, no other so-called God. It's only Jesus Christ. There's no other name given, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's only through the name of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean a nomenclature. That's the title. It means what the name represents, his character, who he is, what he did, the whole thing, the whole ball of wax. Jesus Christ is our priest. He is our mediator. In fact, Paul tells us that in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one and only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. So as the anointed one, he was the prophet to exegete God to us, to reveal God to us. As the, prophet, as the priest, he's the one who brings us together. But a third person was anointed in the Old Testament, and that was to the office of a king. Now, this is more of a future reality than the present one. It's a prophetic one, if you want. Although Jesus is the king of all believers, he is not yet that king, really. He is not yet seated on the David's throne that will make him the king, as it were. He is seated at God's right hand, but not on the throne of David. Now, there's some people today who believe that, and they believe that the kingdom has already come, and there will be no future kingdom where Jesus sits on the throne of David. And we have all kinds of false teaching now in this so-called kingdom come theology today. We hear it here in the Bahamas all the time. But Jesus is not yet the king in the sense that the Bible talks about him being the king. Because he is primarily the king of the Jews, and he will rule over them as a nation during the millennium. And we also know that one day he will rule over the entire universe. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. He will be that. He will be king of kings. He will be Lord of lords in actual fact. Every tongue shall indeed confess and every knee shall indeed bow to acknowledge this fact in a coming day. But right now, Jesus Christ is seated at God's right hand. He's not yet ruling as a king, although he is, of course, potentially. And so, as prophet, he relates to the past and the present. He reveals God to us. As priest and mediator, he relates to our present. He cleanses our conscience and he intercedes for us. As coming king, he relates to our future and he will be king of kings and lord of lords. That's the message of the gospel. That's a central word about Jesus Christ, even given in the main, even while he was still in the manger. Now, the beautiful thing about all of this is that in the Christmas story, we have provided for us a complete salvation. As prophet, Jesus enlightens the mind darkened by sin. 
Through him, the glorious light of the gospel can now shine into our once darkened heart and mind. He is indeed the light of the world. As priest, Jesus provides ongoing cleansing from an evil conscience, which gives us the assurance that we are, in fact, the children of God because we place faith in him. This produces joy and happiness to the believer and causes our emotions to be in tune with the heart and mind of God himself. As king, Jesus is our new master now as well as in the future. He is the Lord whom we willingly obey, and he lovingly gives us directions for our lives. He is our Lord and our master now. He's our coming king. Jesus, therefore, meets the needs of our mind, emotions, and our will, body, soul, and spirit. Why is this important? It's important important because these are the elements that make up the human personality, that makes us who we are as human beings, our minds, our emotions, and our will. And Jesus Christ meets the needs in every year. Same way we talk about total depravity, saying that every part of man's being has been contaminated by sin. When you become a believer, we can talk about total cleansing. We can talk about total consecration because the Spirit of God invades and impacts every part of our being, spirit, soul, and body, mind, emotions, and will. The Christmas, mes- the Christmas message, then, the Christmas story, tells us that God, through Christ, has provided us, provided us with a complete, holistic salvation. Everything we need, spiritually speaking, has been supplied by the person of Jesus Christ through who he is and through what he's done. As Paul says, we have need of nothing. God has given us everything that pertains to life, that's eternal life, and godliness. Everything we have in this little baby here. So we can now have contact with God in every area and aspect of our nature, mind, emotion, and will. Because Jesus Christ is our prophet, he's our priest, and he's our king. Through him, we have a holistic relationship with God. We have a perfect and complete salvation. That is the content of the evangelistic message. And it's all contained here in the Christmas story, the cradle of evangelism. But now, let's go to verse 14. What is the ultimate purpose of the message of evangelism? Look at verse 14. It says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. That's verse 14. This is the end purpose. This is the ultimate purpose of evangelism, the glory of God, to glorify the triune God. Friends, this is the purpose for the coming of Jesus Christ to Bethlehem's manger, to bring glory to God. We like to say that the primary reason for Jesus being born was so that he might die to save man. That was a byproduct. The major purpose for the coming of Christ into this world was to glorify the Father. Read John 17, his prayer. You'll see he says that again and again and again. He came to glorify the Father. Came to glorify the Father. Now we have that same responsibility. Those of us who have allowed Christ to be born in us through faith in him, Now we have the responsibility of proclaiming him 
so that others might come to know him as we do, so that God might be glorified. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he might be God in all and over all once again. Now, why then should you and I as believers evangelize? What should we do after Christmas? We should tell others about the Christ of Christmas because our purpose for being on earth is to glorify the triune God. That's the bottom line purpose. That's why we're here. If God wanted to save us and that's the only thing he had in mind, he would have taken us to be with him the moment we accepted Christ. But he didn't. He left us here. He left us here so we could become little Christ, as it were, so he might be glorified in us the same way that he was glorified in Jesus Christ, the one who did his will. What he did was according to his will. And because he did it, he glorified the Father. We have the same mission, to do the will of God so that he might be glorified. Why should you evangelize? Why should you publicize the good news? Why should you make public the statement that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he is prophet, that he is priest, and that he is king? The answer is very simple, because it glorifies God. That's what we are to do not only after Christmas, but before Christmas and during Christmas, to glorify God in all that we do. That's the ultimate purpose of our existence, I say, to glorify him. How can we do it? We can do this by making him known to others. So one of the questions that we want to ask you, when last have you told someone about Jesus Christ? Now, I don't simply mean sitting down and going through with a tract with him. That's a beautiful way to do it, by the way. But I mean by a relationship where you show by your love, by your compassion, your care for others, that you're doing this because God first loved you, Jesus first loved you, And now you want to show that love to others. When last have you told others about Jesus Christ? By the way you live. Not only by what you say, but by the way you live. Now, one of the things that we're going to learn as we go through uh, this emphasis this coming year, Lord willing, we're going to be talking about discipleship. We're going to be talking about the need for this this relationship with others by the way we live and what we do to share Christ. But always be available to turn your conversation around to things that pertain to Jesus Christ, pertain to the one who came to die for us. Christians meet and they talk about all kinds of things. Talk about politics. They talk about sports. They talk about the referendum. They talk about all kinds of things, but they don't talk about Jesus Christ. It's amazing to me. That's why... Many times I go to parties, I feel very uncomfortable because I sit down and all the talking is little small talk. Not anyone talking about Christ. And if you try to bring it around, you have all kinds of problems. Christians need to talk more about Christ regardless and have a way of sharing Christ. I have a very simple way myself. I don't go anywhere, I'm talking about tracks now, without carrying one of these little booklets because I get in a conversation And I just simply say to them, have you ever thought about your relationship with Jesus Christ? I says, here's a little booklet that helped me quite a bit, and I just give it to them. I says, read it sometime. I put my telephone number in the back, and let me know what you think about it. I've given away hundreds of things like that, got many good responses, because it's a simple way of sharing your faith. But as I say, giving out the track itself is not enough. 
It's a relationship. It's a lifestyle. It has to do with your relationship to Jesus Christ. And the closer your relationship is to Jesus Christ, the more you are going to talk about him. Put it to a test. Your next party you're invited to by a Christian. See how many conversations are going to be around Jesus Christ. Just see. Just check it out. See what it is. And if you notice that it's not happening, try to do it yourself. You know what I can say? Oh, no, you got to bring up that holy stuff here today. Why are you, we have fun. This is the time for fun. Relax. So, in other words, you can't talk about Jesus Christ and relax. The only way you could relax is if you talk about something else. It's just something we've got to change. You see, it's a relationship. That's what we have to do after Christmas. The gift must continue. The gift must continue to go on and on and on. Jesus Christ, I say, was not given for us to keep wrapped up to ourselves, to keep unwrapped, as it were, simply to admire him and keep to ourselves. No, he's to be shared with others who have not yet heard about him. That's what we are to do after Christmas with the Christmas story. We've already seen that one result of having this first Christmas is peace in this text. Peace, goodwill towards men. But let's look at it finally as we close at the, at the demand of the message of evangelism. The demand of the message. Verse 14. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, the King James says peace and goodwill towards all men. And that's a very unfortunate translation. Again, if you look at a New American Standard Version, it says Peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Another translation says, towards men of good will. Now that sort of implies that God's peace is going to be given to everybody who has a good attitude or good decision or good uh, disposition. And he says, peace toward men of good will. But that's not saying that. The text saying here is that God's peace is only given to those with whom he is well pleased. That's the thrust of the text. That's the intention of the author. To say that God's peace is only given to those with whom he is well pleased. So the question is, with whom is God well pleased? In the context of our passage, it's to those who receive the Christmas message about this Jesus Christ who he is as prophet, priest, and king, the anointed one. God is pleased with those who receive his original Christmas gift. Those are the only ones who will experience the peace and joy that Christ came to bring. Those are the ones who has God's favor resting upon them. When you receive the word that is said about this one, wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. Hebrews 11 says this, Those that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Notice that. Those who diligently seek him. In other words, God's favor rests upon those who place faith in him by receiving his indescribable, unspeakable Christmas gift, Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ, faith alone in Christ alone brings peace and joy and rewards us with a complete, holistic salvation. The demand of the evangelistic message then is faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. 
The Christmas story, therefore, is the cradle of evangelism, and it tells us what we are to do after Christmas. Someone has said, wise men still seek him. You've heard that? But in light of this message, I would like to add that obedient men still seek to make him known. Obedient men and women seek to make him known. Or put it another way around. Um, What was I going to say? A thought just came and it went just as fast as it came. Obedient men still seek to make him known. Um, I wanted to put another word in for obedient. Oh yeah, worshiping men seek to make him known. Because that's the result of finding Christ. Worship. And an expression of that worship is when we seek to make him known. And so I say to you, at the end of this old year, especially to those of us who have been committed the word of reconciliation. That's to believe in Christ. We've been committed to word of reconciliation. That word is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That was the word spoken at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And so now I ask you, especially those who have encountered the Christ of Christmas by placing your faith in him as your Savior, what will you do now after Christmas? Will you keep the gift to yourself or will you pass it on so that the gift will go on and on by giving and making him known to community and a world that is still dying in sin and looking for peace, looking for joy and complete salvation. You and I have that message because we have Christ and we are obligated, joyfully obligated to make him known to the world. If you haven't received Christ yet, I encourage you, I invite you, I implore you right now where you are to open your life, to open your heart to him. Simply acknowledge that you're a sinner, keeping with the word of God, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages, the result, what we profit for in our sin is death, which is separation from God. In other words, because of our sin, we've been separated from God. We cannot in any way cause ourselves to be reconciled to him. That's why the mediator has come, the bridge builder, Jesus Christ, perfect God, perfect man. He holds the hand of God. He holds your hand. He holds my hand, and he reaches out just as we're sinking to be lost, and he saves us by his death and his resurrection on Calvary. And all you have to do is say that, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin, that he took my place on Calvary's cross, Open your life to him and ask him to come in to make you a little Christ. You can do that, and then you will be able to pass the gift on. So my question to you is, what will you do? First, to the unsaved person, will you give your life to Christ today? You don't have to walk up here to sign a piece of paper. You don't have to do any of that. Right where you're seated, you can make that decision, give your life to Christ. To those of you who are believers, will you make a new commitment today that you're going to tell others about Christ in this coming year, in 2013, that your life will be given over to making Christ known to others by the way you live and by the things you say as well.